Okay. Awesome. Okay. Hello, everyone. Uh, welcome back to another episode of Technicari. My name is Leonard Sengere, editor at Texin. Today I'm joined by Mark Kleiner, co-founder of Dream VC. We wrote about them on our site uh, last week, uh, the first week of March. You might have read that article. And so today we're talking to one of the co-founders. The other co-founder, Cindy, I could not be with us. Oh, hi, Mark, how are you doing? Hi, Leonard, thanks for having me on. Doing really well and excited for the conversation. Thanks again for inviting us to speak. Oh, cool, cool, cool. That, that works. Oh, so, so what we are going to do today, so like I said, Mark is co-founder of Dream VC. So we're going to find out more about Dream VC and what they are about. So first we're going to we're going to try to get to understand what this whole thing is, what venture capital is, what uh, angel investing is, what private equity is, just to just to make sure everyone understands the space that we're talking about. So we will get to Dream VC, we will get to Mark and Cindy and the work they're doing. So let's let's start with that. So so Mark, to de to demystify it, uh, what is venture capital or private equity, angel investing, those kind of terms? What what what, what, what is it all about? Well, Leonard, we're starting with some big questions right away. Well, <laughs> let me take a step back and just explain to people a little bit about the wider kind of innovation ecosystem. And then that hopefully will give some context around where angel investing, venture capital and private equity really plug in. So the private investment space has existed forever. We've always had private capital. We've always had private owners of capital and individuals who own assets or individuals who own money that can go towards supporting those assets. But the venture capital industry itself has really only been born in the last 60, 70 years or so. From the 1950s, 1960s, it really ballooned first in East Coast US before spreading to the West Coast, to the so-called Silicon Valley, and then later on across the entire world. Now, there are a couple of differences between angel investors, individuals who are supporting early stage businesses with funding and their personal expertise, venture capital firms who are funding growth growing businesses and funding that disruptive growth to enable those businesses to take on a much larger market and private equity, which is usually a much more substantial capital or monetary injection into a company to actually help that company grow, scale its operations or expand. The most important one is where they kind of sit in the process of a startup. So a startup is really any early stage business that's looking to disrupt a high market, a large market, logistics market, the agricultural market, the finance market, something that wants to go against the big banks, something that wants to go against the big cooperatives and build something that's revolutionary or disruptive from a technological point of view. Usually such a business, because it wants to take on a very large market, needs more than the normal amount of resources. It can't just be your average restaurant or laundry shop that might start from day one and slowly grow into a franchise. A startup must grow very, very quickly. By some estimates, you know, more than 100% growth per year to actually reach the scale of uh, sizing up to those giants out in various industries. To do that, they need to use a lot of cash. So where do they get that cash? Well, any bank is going to tell them that they are too risky of an early business. Any lending institution is going to say, we don't want to lend to someone who doesn't have collateral. And that's where the angel space and the venture capital space really comes in. 
angel investors, they come in to provide that first capital as wealthy individuals. For example, as somebody who has extra cash on the side, you can support a business by giving them a loan or an investment, purchasing a small stake in that company in exchange for the risk that you take to give them that money. This money can then be spent to grow the company to a certain level. Once the startup has reached a certain level, it needs more substantial money. And most of the time, angel investors are not going to be multimillionaires or billionaires. They're just relatively wealthy or upper middle class individuals. So what happens next is that a startup needs to turn to more substantial funding sources. But remember, it's still not stable enough or not necessarily reliable enough. It's still a really risky asset. So most individuals, most banks and lending financial institutions are not going to be saying, come to us. Instead, the startup has to go to their risky or capital risk focused economy. And that's where the venture capitalists actually sit. They provide more substantial funding, more substantial support, potentially some kind of consultative support, connections to other wealthy individuals, as well as help in growing your business, growing your sales and everything else needed to reach kind of the next level of growth. And once our startup has really started to look more like a medium-sized business, that's when private equity comes in. And that's usually at the amount of money that we're talking about, $10 million or further, where we're talking about more substantial investments. And that's when we start to really blur the lines between the more traditional lending space and the more traditional banking space and the private wealth space, which is asset management, private equity, and this kind of later stage investment that usually follows on from venture capital, which in its own right had followed on from those early angel investors. Hopefully that gives you guys a bit of context. I think it does. I think it does. Even for myself, uh, it helps to understand how it all works that, uh, you know what, this is a risky business. So uh, the, the lenders that we used to, the establishment lenders are not interested in, and like you said, angel investors are not necessarily uh, billionaires. This is just people with some extra cash who can invest in a business that they as a loan or to get some equity. And we, as we go through the whole stage of funding that startup until it reaches its full potential, which, which is exciting. So uh, as that investor, as that guy with some extra cash, I'm just thinking, uh, what are the options does that guy, that investor, that potential investor have and why should they be looking to, to the venture capital space to get in on funding these startups as opposed to other options, maybe investing in fixed assets or mm-hmm. anything else? So, so maybe if you could help with that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's a whole reason why we have a generation, technically two or more generations of people across the entire world who have been investing in real estate, family business, supporting their own businesses to really grow them into kind of slow growing, but substantial sources of cash, whether that's through dividends or through cash payouts and a particular quarter in more fixed asset sectors. However, quite often as a nature, as a direct byproduct of these sectors, companies that are built to last, companies that are built to slowly but surely build from an SME to a medium-sized business, perhaps to a corporate, will not be growing exponentially. Similarly to how a restaurant cannot grow its revenues 100% week on week, or for example, let's imagine a clothing line cannot suddenly produce a thousand times as many units as uh, it was producing last month. That kind of growth is, however, possible in the tech-enabled or tech-focused wider space where startups most often find themselves. So a startup by nature is disruptive, and that means it's targeting a very, very large opportunity. 
by proxy, that means that if the startup succeeds against all odds in, in what is almost like a gamble, an attempt to take on this larger market, the startup has technically skipped the whole stages of small business, medium-sized business, and corporate. And that's what you really see. We see the flutter waves around the continent. We see Ope and many other companies reach a certain scale where just a few years ago, they were a small startup taking on a huge market that nobody believes in. And now they are a multi-billion dollar company. Why this is interesting is that there, there's a huge, huge return opportunity for those early investors who go in and support those private capital innovations, that kind of whole innovation economy at the early stage. An example of this is Jumia, the e-commerce company that is relatively prominent in West Africa. Yeah. For the early angel investors who jumped into Jumia, you could have seen more than a 10,000% return on your investment in about five years. Wow. To see the same thing with a real estate portfolio, you'd have to be a multi-billionaire who's made a lot of fantastic investments over time and really, really hope that you just got in before property boom. As you can imagine, the likelihood of that is almost impossible. In fact, most real estate investors usually see a return under 10% year on year, sometimes running up to 20, whereas startups, especially the more successful ones, can exceed a 100% return year on year, which obviously provides a much more risk-adjusted, albeit, but much more um, lucrative investment opportunity. I guess the final uh, touch point there is that the startup economy is one that isn't very much unique to one company. What do I mean by that is when you invest in a house, you invest in a fixed asset, you buy a factory, a house, a small business, that's a business that you own. That money is invested in that business and it stays in that business. Mm -hmm. Similarly, though, if you sell that business, that money goes back to you and you have that money in your pocket, right? It's going to impact one business and one individual. In a startup, the scenario is very, very different. We're talking about a multi-stakeholder ecosystem. That startup will grow. It will employ a lot of people. Some of those people will go on and build their own startups. Others will go on and become other investors and invest in other companies. And the more startups that get funding domestically, the more international investors are pulled in to then later finance their startups as they grow to become later stage businesses. That means by investing in one business, and for instance, funding one business for $1,000, that $1,000 might go through the economy four or five times, go through to four or five different companies, and later on, perhaps give you a multi-time return by impacting not just the one company you've invested in, but also all their clients, their customers, and the wider kind of innovation ecosystem, for example, in Zimbabwe. Oh, no, that's excellent. So, so it actually, you answered like the question I had following up that. Uh, I was going to ask about the impact of like startup success to the economy versus investment in fixed assets and those other small businesses. So you've answered that. Uh, I mean, you know, Leonard, there's still like some something I can add on that. There's yeah. a whole element there of private capital owned assets that people often underplay. When you look at most of the economies right now, most of the leading economies in African markets right now, what we see is we see a very, very large public sector a sector that's directly affiliated, powered, or backed by the state. And that's, that's great. And to an extent, that's necessary in many of these markets. But the private capital space, the private wealth owner space, as well as the entrepreneurial ecosystems are still largely congregated around a particular set of hubs, around Nigeria, around Egypt, countries like Ghana, Rwanda, Kenya, and South Africa. And there's a certain reason for that. And largely the reason is that there are more support infrastructures or support structures in place to enable that private capital space. And what's the direct result of that? We see more job creation. We see more opportunities both on the entrepreneur and the investor side. And we see substantially more foreign direct investment flowing in. Take Nigeria just as an example. 
you might think, you know, you look back a few years, that foreign direct investment is a major source of funding for the economy at large, not just for startups. And then you compare that to venture capital, then it might seem like two completely different scale, scaled initiatives. But actually, in the last two years, venture capital funding in Nigerian economy has actually exceeded the foreign direct investment going into Nigeria. Oh. That scenario is possible to replicate in each of the 54 markets on the continent if there are enough incentives for individuals to start investing in startups, which can then bring in more substantial capital, which can then make that whole ecosystem grow. So I, I do definitely see multiple multiplier effects of even just one individual starting to put their cash towards individual startups. Wow, wow. So, so, so you mentioned uh, uh, these uh, support from governments and uh, the infrastructure that's in place in these other markets that are getting all the funding. What are some of mm-hmm. uh, the laws or the regulations or that are in those specific markets that make them attractive as opposed to other countries in Africa? Yeah, I mean, there's a couple of things that can really help the innovation economy thrive. And I'm sure, Leonard, you've also seen how in just the last two years alone, more than four different countries, including Tunisia, Senegal and Nigeria, have put in place startup friendly bills that essentially encourage entrepreneurs to start new businesses by giving them either tax credits or tax benefits or just giving them an easier format of incorporation or otherwise try to encourage investors by decreasing the tax that investors have to pay on earning a certain capital gain. What you see in many markets that are really efficient and kind of encouraging private capital flows is that they realize that by making it easier for individuals to put in capital, then they are less likely to take that capital out of the ecosystem. So reflecting Mm -hmm. back to that point of a multiplier effect where the same thousand dollars goes through the economy three or four times, we see that happening in countries like Singapore and countries like the US where even if we start with the same default allocation, for example, from a pension fund to the private capital industry, when that goes into the venture capital space or eventually into the startup space down the line, that's going to have a certain ripple effect. So definitely, I think there's a a lot of room there in terms of providing bills or creating bills or lobbying for such bills at a government level, whether to encourage more investment directly from domestic bodies into the private capital space or the innovation economy, or just to make it much easier for individuals or institutions who want to take that step to do so without being potentially penalized by capital gains taxes or by obligations perhaps to pay some kind of tax on just holding such an illiquid asset. So again, make it easier for people to come in and then they have less of an incentive and much more of an opportunity cost of taking that money out of, for example, the Kenyan economy or the Zimbabwean economy or say the Zambian economy. No, no, excellent. Uh, So we're talking about, so that's the startup economy and there is this uh, quote unquote common understanding that startups are risky, you know, Uh, Mm -hmm. some saying like there's a, an over 90% fail rate. And so I was just mm-hmm. wondering how true is that? And is there some context to, to that high failure rate that can alleviate hesitancy to invest? Or can you shed yeah. some light on that risk? 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. And thanks for asking that. That's actually, you know, an under-discussed topic, but it's one that has a lot of misinformation. And it's certainly partially part of that disinformation that we're trying to solve with this regime VC. Mm-hmm. So the 90% failure rate is kind of a figure that's been thrown around the internet a lot. And it relates from a particular study that looked at the number of startups that had gone through a range of venture capital funded rounds to see whether the startups had actually gone on to IPO or potentially be acquired or reached a certain pre- predefined definition of success. Now, as I'm sure you know, there's a lot of potential pathways for a company to grow. It mm-hmm. can grow at a stable rate. It can go and IPO, for example, on Johannesburg Stock Exchange or somewhere else. It can go and grow at a relatively normal rate and pay dividends to its investors. It can buy back its stake from its investors, or it can be acquired by an M&A action as well as many other alternative kind of exit opportunities for that startup to continue to exist for 100 years further. Mm-hmm. Now, what this study was looking at was that subset of startups that had chosen to go and raise venture capital funding, do so multiple times, and then try to continue to grow at a particularly high disruptive rate of growth with a view to going on to become perhaps unicorns or really high value companies. Mm-hmm. Essentially, companies that wanted to become the next Ubers or the next Airbnbs, the next Dropboxes of the world. Mm-hmm. Obviously, not every company is pre-built to do that. A lot of companies simply aren't built to try and tackle that market. So subsequently, a lot of them were taking on more risk than they need to do. Mm-hmm. That isn't the case right now with the wider market. In fact, I'd say that the startup failure rate, if we look at any of the 54 markets right now, we're talking about the African context, most of them don't really see a startup failure rate anywhere near as high. It's more that for a very nuanced uh, subsection of startups that try to grow so quickly that they need capital injections frequently, continuously to survive, and who fail to get those capital injections, that they make up the majority of that so-called failure rate. But it certainly isn't at 90% or even 75%. It's much, much lower. Though. The counterpoint there is that quite often it's those companies that try to go against those odds. It's the companies that try to go on and disrupt a really, really huge market that actually have the highest possible return. You think of, for example, the telecommunications market right now, and it's hard to imagine that a company could break into the USSD space or could break into the space mm-hmm. of, for example, mobile money. But then you look at M-Pesa and you know, their kind of growth in the last few years, and then you start thinking otherwise. So similarly, the more complicated, the more difficult the market there is and the higher the failure rate of the startup, the more the incentive for individual investors or venture capitalists to try and help that startup. Because in the assumption that the startup succeeds, it's going to succeed really, really well, right? Again, Mm -hmm. counterpointing to the, for example, real estate example, the fixed asset example, where you can't imagine it performing 100 times better than it was last year, just on the nature of a particularly good harvest or a particularly good year. Mm -hmm. Well, that no, that helps clear it up uh, because yeah, that ninety percent figure is just thrown around, and that context that 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 is missing for most people. Uh, and like you're saying, uh, it is risky in everything when you're investing, but uh, the risk with these startups is different depending on what they're trying to achieve and how fast mm-hmm. they're trying to grow and which industry they're trying to disrupt. So, mm-hmm. yeah, so to just throw around the figure like 90% without context, which industry were they trying to disrupt? How fast were they growing? And, and how many other startups succeeded uh, that mm-hmm. did not go through this route? So, so I so no, that clears it up. Uh, mm-hmm. so, so moving on from that, uh, 
so you you touched on the African market, um, and you are quite knowledgeable about the African market. Like, so how do you view the current venture capital state in Africa? How do you see what's the state of this industry? Well, you mean you've you've hit the nail on the head, Leonard. I think this is the so-called elephant in the room. Look, the venture capital industry, in my opinion, is only at its first innings. If we really talk about the markets on the continent right now, mm-hmm. we have fifty-four different markets, fifty-four markets that are largely not interconnected to each other, that have largely not realized the synergies that can be arising from you know cross-country partnerships, cross-country collaborations, and where in most of these markets. We, one, don't have a startup-friendly environment for entrepreneurs, and we also don't have a startup-friendly environment for investors. Even in the few markets where we have had several more startup-friendly bills that have come to pass, that has largely been the result of individuals who have been really strongly lobbying for those actions, whether that's in Kenya, whether that's in Nigeria, whether it's a part of North Africa as well. So there's a lot, lot more potential of where that's to come, and that potential could unlock an enormous economy. So I don't know if you've seen, but the venture capital space has grown substantially, much faster than almost any other industry in the continent in the last uh, eight or nine years. Since about 2013 or 2014, when there was about $100 million of tracked funding going towards African-based startups, that has increased now to more than $5 billion. Mm. You don't see that 50x increase in pretty much any other industry, ranging from energetics to agritech to fintech to anything else. That all said, 5 billion is still not substantial. While it might look substantial to that 100 million, that's not substantial if you look at the wider VC industry across the entire world. In mm. fact, you know, you, can, you look at London, you look at Paris, New York, Silicon Valley, and ma- major small ecosystems that on a population level or on a wealth level pale to the African continent. And yet these small hubs often have tens of thousands of individual investors, whereas the entire African continent right now only has about a thousand active individuals, right? So Mm -hmm. we're talking about a market that is not even the top of the iceberg. The iceberg hasn't even hit, I would say. (laughs) We're we're talking about a market where we have more than $50 billion in uh, remittance payments, not including all the untracked funding coming back to the continent from the diaspora. We have a continent where there are several hundreds of billions of dollars locked in real estate and land and family business, where even you know one or two percent of this going towards BC could be a substantial difference. We also have a continent where most markets, especially in Zimbabwe and other markets, have a very, very low allocation to alternative asset classes at a government level. So pension funds, asset managers, they basically have almost no allocation to VC funds, which means that the domestic venture capital landscape sees like three, five, sometimes 10 investors, not the hundreds or 200, 500,000 venture capital firms you might see in more well-capitalized markets in Asia or for example, in Europe or the US. And it's not impossible to fix any of these things, right? It's very much contrary to the narrative that any of the 54 countries are poor or unable to develop that ecosystem. It's just that there are certain blockers in place. And if any of these blockers are released, I think the VC industry could comfortably reach more than $20 billion in funding or even higher, uh, considerably higher than where we are right now. No, no. <laughs> so, so it is exciting to find out that uh, there is space, there is room to grow there. Uh, so, so it's just about uh, education and, and, and uh, getting our governments to, to understand these things and the, the huge corporations, corporations to understand. And you mentioned... Uh, that five billion uh, received in that over five billion of standard startup funding in 2021. Uh, 
so 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 who who is actually investing in these startups? Where where are they from? Who are these investors? Yeah, well, I mean, we do definitely see a much more widespread of investors than we saw even a few years ago. A few years ago, it used to be just predominantly South African investors, international investors, and a select number of funds that were operating largely out of countries like Nigeria and Kenya. And you are seeing a much wider spread now. In North Africa, there's a really big trend for uh, Gulf cooperative countries to really start investing. So we see a lot of Middle Eastern countries starting to invest in Egypt and similar markets. At the same time, we're seeing more working professionals in South Africa and Zimbabwe and Zambia slowly starting to uh, make individual investments in their own right. Again, not necessarily at a uh, fast enough pace for the ecosystem, but slowly that, that is happening. And at the same time, we are seeing a complete explosion of fund activities around Nigeria. So Nigeria has really been kind of uh, top line news for many uh, individuals in the last two or three years, largely because the diaspora, the Nigerian diaspora, one of the largest in the world, has started to realize that there is a huge wealth opportunity in building startups and funding startups and enabling those startups. You look back over the last five years, we've seen more than 15 new accelerators launch, incubators are launching every few months, and we have more and more individuals asking, how do I get involved? How do I get started? Right. And I think yeah. that in that sense, there, there's a lot, <laughs> there's yeah. a lot that's happening. Well, the, the, there's a lot happening. And, and so you, you, you touched on this as well earlier when you said, you know what, banks cannot take over this role of funding startups. They, they're just too risky for them. And so, so now looking at, uh, so, so it's, 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 uh, it's good to hear that uh, we, we're, we're getting more Africans uh, more governments, more uh, corporations, more enterprises involved in this mm-hmm. space over Africa. But there's this uh, conception that, uh, I mean, Africans, uh, whether locally based or abroad, do not have uh, the funds to invest in startups. Uh, and, and so you mentioned that they're investing in real estate and all these other things and all these other fixed assets. But is that mm-hmm. true that there is no money there because if if people pull together money, uh, there could be something there. So what, what do you think about that? Uh, locally based Africans and uh, those abroad, uh, do they have funds to, to properly invest in these startups? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, Leonard, this is like an area that you'll hear me talking about again and again because it's an almost entirely underexplored opportunity there, both for the diaspora, diaspora for countries living abroad or living in between those countries, but also for working professionals in pretty much every of the big cities on the continent. Mm -hmm. As I mentioned before, London, New York, Chicago, Paris, Beijing, you know, we see huge cities around the world that aren't in any way larger than, for example, Lagos and Nairobi or other large cities on the continent. And yet in those first examples, we're seeing thousands of individuals, dentists, engineers, consultants, you know, finance professionals who are allocating a portion of their income to invest in this kind of higher risk asset class because they can see and they can see lots of examples around them of success cases of what has happened. Imagine you're an early investor in Facebook. Now you'd be a multimillionaire. An early investor in Spotify or in Netflix, you'd be a multi-billionaire, right? There's a fantastic opportunity to make a lot of wealth by funding innovation. And quite often, especially if we're talking about building such a startup, for example, in Nigeria and Ghana and Kenya and any of the Francophone countries in Zimbabwe, 
it's not just the capital that helps that startup to grow. It's the connections, the understanding on the ground, the ability to help them with sales, with marketing and with other things. So in that sense, the working professionals actually based or with experience of working in Africa have a much better opportunity to be smart capital investors and actually provide much more substantial value to any startup they invest in than someone sitting in LA or sitting in London or sitting in Europe or anywhere in Asia. So I guess the point I'm making is actually we have millions of people who could be funders. We have millions of people in the diaspora who are very well endowed and who can very much invest at the small check investments, more substantial investments. Even a thousand dollars can go a pretty long way for an early entrepreneur. And we also have a whole generation of working professionals, pretty much the entire kind of white collar industry. Mm -hmm. it, it's uh, largely able to tap, capitalize into that space. And actually the barriers aren't there in the US and other markets, which are already more capitalized. They actually set up barriers preventing people from investing because there's such a large a number of people who want to invest. And what we're seeing in you know, the African context is the opposite is that a lot of people have that wealth, but they're putting that into less risky assets, into assets that have a lower yield return, like treasuries, like bonds, like, for example, you know, um, assets in the uh, public stock exchange, without actually considering domestic startups just around the corner, many of whom now are going on to raise substantial funding and make substantial return for the early investors. It's just that, that those early investors are largely, at least 50% or more, are still largely foreign and not interconnected with the country. Mm, so what do you think why do you think that is like this risk aversion uh, because like you're saying they are I, I think you mentioned this uh, in, in some conversation we had even earlier that uh, there are a lot of high net worth individuals and very high net worth individuals and uh, but they, they just don't invest in this riskier but uh, uh, startups that can offer more reward why why, why do you think there is that risk aversion i mean there's a lot of reasons behind that right you could write a phd on the topic i think fundamentally i'd probably say there's three things right so three things really that make any successful investor in any different market all the way from canada to new zealand from russia to south africa you can be anywhere in the world and you're always going to consistently need three things to at least start your investment career right it's mm -hmm. something we constantly keep as a mantra with the kind of stuff we teach in gmc it's uh, you need knowledge you need network and you need mm -hmm. capital most people have one of these three most mm -hmm. people don't have all three they either have the knowledge of what venture capital is but then they don't have the capital to invest or the network of people to invest alongside or they are an ultra high net worth individual who has a lot of capital to invest, but they have no exposure and no way to meet that entrepreneur who is maybe struggling along on $100 a month somewhere in the garage or in their like parents' house trying to build the next Facebook. Likewise, maybe they are someone who is an amazing connector. They're sitting in the corporate space. Maybe they're in the tech media, like yourself, for instance, or they might be in, for example, the wider kind of corporate space as a consultant or financier or an accountant, and they might know hundreds of individuals, but they don't have the capital to invest themselves, or they have some constraints on making investments, or alternatively, they have no access to, again, the knowledge necessary to start in the venture capital space. So usually it's just the fact that those three kind of things don't always tie into one person. And most people don't have the confidence or the knowledge that they can reach out and they can find those resources. Historically, most such resources that have been developed to get people into investing have unfortunately been very Western-centric. So we see a lot of such programs, fellowships, training programs, development programs, 
angel workshops, for example, focused in the US. Pretty much each of the top 20 cities in the US has such programs, networks, communities that enable dentists, working professionals, pilots, engineers to start investing on the side. Unfortunately, we don't really see that same process happening as much. And that infrastructure play of enabling individuals to move into investments hasn't really happened yet, partially because the investment space is so new. Again, mm -hmm. reflecting back mm -hmm. to the fact that this $5 billion is still just scraping the surface of the wider potential. Mm -hmm. Now, I definitely feel like there's a lot that can be happening, but I feel like a few things have to first change. Mm -hmm. One, it must be much easier to get access to network knowledge and capital and get all three things to converge in one point. Shameless plug, I think DreamVC is one of the organizations trying to do that. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> and secondly, we, uh, we really need to fight the cultural context around entrepreneurship. I'm sure you must have related to this as well, but mm. uh, having come from Eastern Europe myself, you know, I think a lot of people grow up, especially if you live in a country that has a mentality that we're an emerging economy or a developing economy, that there's a certain grass is greener life, uh, lifestyle somewhere else. And a lot of people who are really talented end up leaving from all over the world to the UK, to the US, to France, to Australia to pursue their dreams. Whereas quite often these individuals actually have the capacity to build a fantastic business or to plug into, for example, the domestic ecosystem and use their expertise to build the next Flutterwave, the next Facebook, you know, the next Google even. And it doesn't even need to be a technologically enabled product. Very much there's a potential there in tech enabled and non-tech enabled businesses. So I think, to be honest, one, knowledge network capital, and two, the cultural context, slowly uh, providing more cultural acceptance of entrepreneurship and investing as viable careers alongside, you know, the usual ones of, for example, more stable careers like engineering, financial services, the medicine space, or things like that. Mm, no, uh, that, especially that, that culture element yeah, that, that will be the biggest challenge because like you're saying, uh, the same attitude, we see the same attitude towards the arts as well in Zimbabwe. Not sure about the other countries, but there's, there's this sort of thinking that, uh, no, this is not mm -hmm. uh, this is not a proper way to, to live. This is, mm -hmm. this is for fun. Mm -hmm. It's not a career. You cannot, so there's that stigma and, 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 and all that. But you, you touched on something as well there. Uh, when you talked about these uh, investor accelerators in, 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 in the West, in, in the more developed markets. And so that's chiefly responsible for this scenario that you said we have more than 50% of the funding that's going to African startups coming from foreign players. Uh, so, so recently, I, I, I know we talked about this earlier, but I think people would be interested to find out uh, what you think about it. We, we're talking about uh, the brighter uh, reports that came out saying uh, less than less than twenty five percent of total African startup funding over the past decade went to companies with at least one black co-founder, meaning seventy five percent of the startups that are getting funding in Africa right now do not have a black co-founder in uh, a continent that's predominantly black, and so 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 there's that, and so 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 people are wondering why that is. So I think you touched on that, uh, you know, talking about where the investors are coming from and 
uh, and usually like like I had a conversation with someone in, in Rwanda telling me that, you know what, uh, with some of these uh, founders, they went to school together with some of these investors in these other countries. And, you know, when you go to the same school, you went through the same training, you, you kind of understand where the other person is coming from. When they, when they tell you about this startup or when they start something uh, in Africa, you, you kind of understand, you, you have mutual knowledge. So you, it's easier for you to invest in that startup. So that was one of the things he raised. So uh, I'm, I'm curious to find out what you think about that and why that is that most of the funding is going to white founded uh, startups. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thanks. And thanks for bringing up the question, to be honest. I think it's something that too many people avoid and it's kind of a painful topic in the VC space. Let me start with um, a few things. So firstly, just to provide context of why that scenario was overwhelmingly the case a decade ago and why it's slowly changing, is mm -hmm. think about the rich capital landscape a decade ago. Most mm -hmm. people, you know, the majority of entrepreneurial ecosystems across the continent were still very, very nascent. So the individuals who had access to network knowledge and capital from the entrepreneurial perspective, who were able to tap into a network of finite worth individuals who had, for example, connections, who could fi finance that, who could provide the legal support, who could provide the operations support to build a business, well, often those individuals who had worked in the US or who had worked, for example, in Europe, who had worked in these capitalized markets and had those individual connections. Mm -hmm. So to a large extent, that was kind of a self-prophesying scenario where we saw a lot of individuals who were getting funding whether that being among the diaspora or just individuals coming from markets like the US and Europe and bringing with themselves that network of connections, enabling them to get funding. Quite often what we were seeing was that, for example, for a Kenyan founder, a black Kenyan founder building a business in Kenya, they would only have access to a, a set of Kenyan focused funds. Whereas that international founder, let's imagine a Canadian or an American founder coming to Kenya often had access to VCs in America or in Canada who wouldn't otherwise have invested in, in Kenyan companies, but who would invest on the basis that this, this individual, whether man, woman, et cetera, was uh, actually coming in from those markets. That was kind of one of the precluding scenarios. Mm -hmm. The much bigger context, however, of why that's continued to be a case a decade down the line is thinking around who actually controls the wealth and how that wealth is going into the VC space. Actually, the question of like why, for example, black founders raise less right now than uh, white founders is very similar to the question of why we see less funding going towards female-owned businesses as opposed to male-owned businesses. Both of these trace back to who controls the wealth in the so-called venture capital food chain. So for a startup to get funding from venture capitalists, they go to a VC. Let's imagine that that VC has a 50-50% chance of being, for example, African or uh, being black or being African or white or being Af non-African and white, for mm. instance. In that sense, which is not the case right now, again, most funds are still controlled by Europeans, Americans, Chinese, et cetera. But let's imagine it was a 50-50 case. Yeah. In that case, if that fund wants to make that investment, they then pass that to their investment committee or the individuals who control that fund. Mm -hmm. That investment committee is often staffed by the limited partners, the people who have backed that fund. And that funding going towards those funds has come from much larger funds, out of whom maybe 80 to 90% have been white and based out of the US or Europe. Their funds in turn and their decision-making is controlled by a board who is sat on, sat on by largely 90% white and male teams from US and Europe again. Mm. So then let's imagine if, for example, we're making a major investment and then we pass that up the decision-making tree 
by the time it's come through to the final decision maker, it's gone through several human levels of decisions, almost all of which will have induced a little bit of bias. Mm-hmm. Even if people say they're not biased or we throw out the assumption of racism, which is obviously mm-hmm. the elephant in the room, a lot of people are racist, it remains an unspoken reality in the VC space. Um, there's going to be several people who are looking to invest in something they understand, in people that look like them, or in people that they can relate back to. Mm-hmm. So unless you start changing the individuals who back the individuals who back the VC funds, right? Mm-hmm. Then if you even start to change it at a VC level, nothing substantially changes, right? Even mm-hmm. if every VC team right now, for example, was staffed by, um, uh, you know, like for example, Black Nigerians or Black Kenyans or Black Zimbabweans, and they wanted to invest in 100% Black-owned businesses, it simply wouldn't happen because some of their own backers, some of the people pulling the strings behind the scenes, are still not going to be fully, for example, African or Black, right? Mm-hmm. So in that sense, I think um, it's it's a much bigger question you've kind of hit. It's like, how can you drive more funding and how can we change that? And how can we get more funding to go to the overwhelming majority of Black founders on the continent? Well, step one, encourage more VCs to actually focus on this subset of startups. Step two, mm-hmm. encourage more LPs, the limited partners behind the VCs, to actually back VCs that are focused on Black-owned businesses. And step three, it's try to change racism at the ultra high net worth level. So at the level of government, at the level of asset managers, who are then deploying this capital to these VC funds. Mm -hmm. Something that I was totally shocked by is uh, looking at some data on, for example, the Kenyan market, the Ugandan market, the Zimbabwean market, among a couple of others. What I saw is that government institutions in these markets, the capital that they're deploying often doesn't go to domestically run funds. They are investing in like white run funds from the US who are then investing in other white run funds in Africa who are then investing in in startups in Africa, right? And in that case, you can imagine, I don't even need to spell out the like biases that has gone in like step one, step two, step three, which then results in like, for example, two identical startups pitching. And for some reason, they're like the white guy with less context doesn't get funding, but the guy with 20 years of an engineering background in Harare uh, first, the, the mm. white guy does get funding and the 20 year experience like Harari engineer doesn't get funding, right? Mm. So, so I think very much there, there's like, yes, huge problem and yes, obvious fix, but I think most people don't want to talk about it because it, it requires more substantial action than just changing the VCs. It requires actually changing who sits behind the VCs. And that's something that few people have the power to do unless there's like collective action towards that end. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. Because like you mentioned, yeah, like from the outside, you can tell that, of course, you can never discount that there is racism somewhere. But to be honest with you, I believe most of it is just that, the network uh, component that you touched on. They they just know each other. It's not even a a racism thing. It's just, you know what, I know this guy. We've worked together before. They've They've interacted before, so it's easier for them to invest in those other companies exactly mm. exactly yeah i mean to a large extent that's something that you know it's not really spoken about but the vc space is not like the banking space it's not even like the private equity space that i mentioned comes in at the later stage due diligence is much much harder to do how can you diligence something about a company that is inherently private and that inherently doesn't disclose most of its information mm. very very difficult so mm. trust factor and human relations play a huge huge role in the venture capital industry and then the angel investing space and what does that mean in practice? Well, in practice, that means that trust and relationships and network drive the ease or difficulty of capital access. 
And unfortunately, that obviously does benefit the individual who's spent some time in the US or in Canada or in Singapore or somewhere else who has that network to leverage on. Even if they're building a ter terrible idea, if they're mm. the only founder that a Singaporean-based investor, for example, is going to know, then of course that Singaporean-based investor is going to invest in them and not potentially in the 5, 10, 100, 500 other businesses that might have been much more promising, for instance, in Kenya, but which had never had access or an opportunity to even present to that Singaporean-based investor. Again, mm. just using that as an analogy, not yeah. for any particular case. Mm. Wow, wow. Yeah, so 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 so, <laughs> so you 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 touched on uh, ways to 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 rectify all this, uh, and so that leads us now to Dream VC and what you guys are up to. So from what I understand, you uh, you as Dream VC are actually coming in to help us get from this uh, stat that we have to to something uh, something something more pleasant so can you tell us about dream vc now i think everyone understands <laughs> what this whole space is all about where we stand right now uh, in mm -hmm. this space and so now we want to find out what dream vc is doing in this space yeah thanks leonard and, and definitely you know let's hope it's for something more pleasant as far as startups or the investment world can ever be pleasant i think it's always a challenge one after another mm. but yeah the, the angle that dream is coming in from is that we are almost an investor accelerator not a startup accelerator mm. and what that means is that as a community-driven platform an educational platform we essentially run remote programs that are open to professionals across the african continent and beyond centered specifically around venture capital and Africa startup ecosystems. Our angle is that there are so many programs trying to help to create more entrepreneurs, to lead more people to create businesses, to support them in those first steps, but then the ecosystem at large is failing them because the same investors we had 10 years ago are the same investors in the space right now. And the growth of the number of individuals investing, institutions investing in African startups, whether domestic or international, is still nowhere near as comparable as to the growth of entrepreneurs. Now, where DreamVC comes in is we run, as mentioned, these specific programs who are trying to solve talent and opportunity deficits on the investor side. Mm -hmm. First, for example, one of the biggest reasons why it's very difficult to open up a venture capital fund and run a venture capital fund or a venture capital house on the continent is access to talent. Quite a number of them right now go to Harvard Business School or Lagos Business School or Stanford or London or somewhere else to recruit because they don't know where to find individuals passionate about venture capital. Mm -hmm. What we do, therefore, is we have a program called Launch into VC, where essentially we train individuals to be the future VC scouts, the future interns, the associates, the analysts who actually power the day-to-day -day venture capital firms. And even last year, we ran a program and had 30 or more participants join with most of them going on now to join venture capital funds across the continent, like We Capital, Lateral Capital, and others as well. Mm -hmm. Some individuals from our programs have even gone on to occupy mid-senior or sometimes even very senior roles in these venture capital funds. And we've had multiple people go on to join emerging funds who've been able to launch funds on the continent just on the basis that now they have access to that talent pool. But that just solves part of the issue. The much larger issue we're talking about is really solving, the, or I guess enabling, more individuals to start investing, right? Mm. Enabling more individuals to start investing as angels, enabling more individuals to start building startups through ecosystem hubs, building new incubators, new accelerators, new studios to build startups, and perhaps even launching funds or syndicates in their own right. 
this kind of multiplier effect in the space. And that's where we're coming in with our more substantial program, the DreamVC Investor Accelerator. This is a really, really comprehensive program. It runs over 20 weeks. And the idea is that we want to save people five or 10 years worth of networking, of building access, of building knowledge, so that at the end of the program, they have access to network knowledge and capital. After going through the program, they will know some people who are capital allocators. They are going to know other individuals in the program who, like them, are looking to start investing or building some entrepreneurship support organizations on the continent. They're going to be packed full of knowledge. Uh, our case is that the program is one of the most comprehensive programs in, in the world for preparing people for the venture capital space. And more supportedly and more widely, we aim to give them kind of a plethora of options. So unlike programs or, in, I guess, academies you might see around the world that say, you go through the program and now you're an angel investor, go and invest. Our angle is a bit different. We call ourselves a launchpad for venture investing because we give people loads of avenues of how they can develop their career. We're not telling them that there's just one way you can support the ecosystem. You could be an accelerator manager and help 100 companies, or you could be an angel and invest in 100 companies, or you could build a VC fund and invest in 1,000 companies. Who knows what path you want to take? And we give you all of those options by giving people a really, really comprehensive knowledge set over our programs, helping them start their career. Mm, interesting. So, so those are the two programs that, that, that you have launching to VC and the Investor Accelerator. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, we're starting with these two programs, but don't worry, we have found this ambition. So our perspective is that the, right now, the space is really struggling, the investment space is really struggling, because mm. most people don't have an incentive to try to encourage more investment to happen. Our angle is we want more investment to happen. So GMVC is very much not the kind of organization that makes front page news that perhaps is going to be on front page covers as an organization funding hundreds of startups out there. That's a space reserved for Future Africa or Launch Africa or other funds that actually have that ability. But what we think is that by building the knowledge infrastructure on the continent, mm -hmm. we can power a thousand other firms, thousands of other individuals to enter that space. And then they can take all the front page news they want Whereas for us, it's content enough to know that we're having a very sizable impact on enabling that ecosystem in each of the 54 markets to really start accelerating and supporting entrepreneurs at scale, but from the investment side. No, oh, nice. Uh, so just to, to make it clear to everyone, so I'm, right now I'm looking at you know, someone like myself, uh, low network person, uh, you know, like, okay, I want to be involved in, in this. I want to be able to invest in, in startups to take on that risk and maybe, who knows, I mm -hmm. might get that high reward. So if if one was to join, uh, either launch into VC or the accelerator, uh, what kind of skills, like, like, is it even open to someone like that? Someone like mm -hmm. who's, who's not looking to work for uh, a VC company or mm -hmm. who's not high net worth so as to be able to, to start, uh, to, to start their own venture capital fund. So can, is there something for someone like that? Absolutely. Absolutely. Look, in fact, both programs to an extent are open for individuals just like yourself. So let me walk you through like the goals of what one might have when they're going for both programs. Yes. The Launcher to VC program is really oriented at somewhat something that we call potentially a younger age demographic. We don't really age constrain this in any way, but we're really looking at early stage professionals who might have had maybe one, five or so years of full-time work experience in the industry. 
we have had in the past several people who are at the end of kind of the academic career, maybe they're in their PhD stage or recent graduates who also have that passion. But this is really individuals who want to directly understand comprehensively the venture capital skills that they need to work in the VC ecosystem, whether that's in a VC fund or in another organization. The skills that they're gaining by going through the program is they're learning how to source deals. How do you actually find these startups to screen startups? How do you actually select the top 10 out of 10,000 or more companies you might see? how to conduct startup due diligence, so how to actually research the startups, how to research the funders, how to understand from a financial point of view, leadership point of view, legal point of view, how to actually take apart that startup and see if it's a good opportunity or not, as well as a whole range of other skills that they need to use on a day-to-day basis if they want to work in the investment space as an investor themselves or more likely within an existing venture capital institution. So we cover everything that you might think of. Things like capitalization tables, which essentially dictate the ownership structure of a startup, taking apart three financial statements and bringing people up to speed with that, explaining funding terms, explaining how exits works, and as well providing that career development launchpad for those in the program who do want to take a step into a venture capital career. That's not a requirement, but it's definitely something that would be very useful if they have those skills to bear and they're looking to make that transition. Now, for those individuals who are perhaps a bit later on in their career, who maybe have had more than five years of full-time professional experience, who have been successful entrepreneurs in their own right, who perhaps are at the VP level, the management level in a company, who might be really, really amazing networkers like yourself, or who might, for example, large, run a large professional network and have already built a bit of a name for themselves, or who might be advisors or experienced operators more widely in the space, they often are thinking, how can I do something more substantial? Maybe they don't want to be the associate or the principal or the manager in a VC firm. Maybe they don't want to work in the VC space directly, but they want to understand the VC space through and through so they can be more impactful in the ecosystem. Maybe that's a profile that fits you better. Well, that's what the Investor Accelerator is really oriented at. Investor Accelerator, beyond the 20-week program that we run, also comes with over 800 hours worth of on-demand content. That's supposed to basically give an individual all the knowledge they might need to get started or to build their career as a startup advisor, a board member, mentor for startups, or just somebody who would go on to do something more substantial in the ecosystem building space. Perhaps that might be building a new tech media company. Perhaps that might be, you know, understanding more about the VC space so one can be a great writer on the venture capital industry. There's a whole range of ways that one can imagine success for an individual. Our whole goal is just to make sure that there are no elements of disinformation about VC and so that we can build a community for such individuals, were they to ever decide to move into investment, that they would have that network and knowledge that they need and the access to capital that they need to become an investor, a fund manager, or somebody else in the space. Mm, excellent. So, so um, after hearing that, uh, and after what we discussed earlier about the whole space as it is, I think, can you put like a ball on it? Just, this is Dream VC, and that, that's the, the venture capital space, and this is the role that Dream VC has in this space, and this is these are the benefits that it will bring to the African venture capital space. Just, just for someone, just the, the, the quick bit, that someone can take home. This is what Dream VC is doing to to to. Uh, so you don't like that word, but to help uh, uh, <laughs> rectify <laughs> what's going mm-hmm. on in this space. Just to put a ball mm-hmm. in it. Yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely. So what DreamVC is, is we're an investor accelerator, accelerating the individual careers of aspiring investors, whether the junior, mid or late stage of their career and their profession to move into, better understand and engage with the venture capital space. Now, how that plugs into the VC industry more widely is that the VC industry has talent gaps at the junior level for professionals entering the space. It has talent gaps at the senior level for managers entering the space. And it has also a lack of individual and institutional investors supporting startups. DreamVC solves each of these individual issues through uh, programs which essentially help individuals become the best future investors or the best future ecosystem builders for the ecosystem at large. The benefits of individuals going into the program is that they get lifetime access to this community, lifetime access to the content of the programs, as well as a really supporting experience by going through the program. Anyone can go online and take an online course, so potentially sign up to read a book or sign up to read a newsletter, but very, very few people can actually understand the ins and outs of the space, the ins and outs of the francophone markets, of the anglophone markets, the much wider investment landscape in the very nuanced 54 markets that Africa actually comprises. So what we want to do is that DreamBC wants to be that bridge for any individual, whether African or international, to essentially be a launchpad for their investment career. Wow. Wow. So I think there you have it. Uh, clear, concise. Uh, I think everyone will understand what DreamBC is all about after that. So what would... Uh, success be for dream vc like how would you measure your success what what kind of scenario would be like okay dream vc has been successful yeah thanks for asking that i mean we get asked quite often whether we have some kind of impact measurement or the kpi i think to be honest our success criteria is getting people to the next step in their investment career so mm -hmm. for some people after going through the program they know that maybe the investment side isn't for them and that's still a success in our mind. We're not defining mm -hmm. success by a number of individuals making investments or anything like that. Because do you want to have an investor who is not committed into your startup actually putting money behind your company or owning a portion of the company? Not at all, right? So in that mm -hmm. sense, our success is defined by getting people to their career goals. Now, in the first program that we ran, 97% of the participants said that they actually reached their career goals. And the only individuals that didn't only did so because they realized that their career goals were changed during the program, just validating the earlier point. Yeah. So whether that means starting in the VC space, whether that means investing individually, whether that means being a more knowledgeable founder who now understands how the VC space operates so you can fundraise more effectively, or for example, just being an individual who is thinking about perhaps investing at some point in the future, any one of these scenarios could be a success case if they get the right knowledge and network and that's kind of what we want to get them to through DreamVC. So that's how we measure success. Yeah, excellent. Uh, so, so you you touched on it. You you said uh, there were thirty. Was it thirty uh, attendees to the program last year? Uh, and so 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 this year, how many people are you taking on? Yeah, definitely. Well, this year we're much more flexible. So we've more than uh, tripled the size of our team. And we're also bringing in a lot more venture capital firms from across the African continent to actually collaborate with us on the program. Don't worry. It's not just me or my team speaking at their fellows all the time. In oh. fact, you know, we're collaborating with a lot of the leaders in the space, the top angels, the top VCs to actually bring them and connect them to this emerging group of investors. What that means in practice is that technically we are upwards flexible. In the first program, we welcomed about 30 fellows out of more than a thousand applicants. 
And mm -hmm. for two new programs, we are comfortably able to take more than 30 people on for both programs. If that means that we see substantially more really strong applications, then there is a case for us taking on even upwards up to 50 or even more. So to be honest, really is a direct derivative of how many people apply and get through our application process. The application process right now for both programs is a four stage process. And all that really tests is an individual's ambition and their true nature in terms of really seeing themselves, understanding more, plugging in more or doing more in the investment landscape in Africa. So if they can demonstrate that across each four of the application stages, we are happy to have them on. No. So 30, 30, so 60 individuals. That's 60 it. minimum, but who knows? Oh, no 60 minimum. Time. Okay, okay. <laughs> all right, all right. And, and how much does it cost? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So at the moment, both programs are priced differently, as you can imagine, they're targeting mm. different uh, stages of your career. The mm. launch into VC program is currently priced at $1,000 altogether. That's mm can be spread across payments or tranche payments for individuals who prefer that. And again, there are bursaries and scholarships out, up to 100% of the program fee available for young individuals who can't afford that. And we do have a more substantial fee for the investor accelerator. That's roughly at about $5,000 at the moment, though we are working with some corporate partners to bring that down. So that might actually change closer to the $4,000 mark down the line. Mm -hmm. But again, there are scholarships available and it's also possible to pay in tranche payments for each individual who can't afford such a substantial amount of money in one go. The main cost is really towards the data that we want to provide people access to, and it is still heavily subsidized, but hopefully in the future we'll be able to subsidize it. Oh, okay, um, excellent. So, so here's a question. Uh, so we're looking at the downstream upstream for Green VC. Uh, I mean, like people joining the program, they come from all walks of life from what I've gathered. Uh, and you're feeding them into the space itself, into these venture capital firms, into businesses, into their own careers. Is, is, is that how, do, did I get it right? Is, is that how you're downstream into upstream? Absolutely, yeah. So upstream, it can be really much anything. We have people coming in from all walks of life. In fact, in the first program, we have people coming in from 12 or more countries, countries that you might not think of with an investment landscape, like Mozambique, Benin, Cote d'Ivoire, even Zimbabwe, for instance. And mm -hmm. we had participants from uh, a whole range of countries taking part, a whole range of backgrounds, any age range. I think we had people coming in all the way from about 26 through to about 50 in our program, in the first one, right? And then the second one, we did definitely see something similar. But in terms of downstream, those outcomes are a bit more easier to define, whether that's venture capital fund, venture capital fund employee, mm -hmm. syndicate, syndicate employee, perhaps ecosystem builder, individual, you know, ecosystem enabler, perhaps someone working in the innovation economy, like an innovation manager at a corporate. There's a whole range of options, but they're much more clearer and more directly interlinked with the VC space than the upstream, which could really be any working professional or any individual who's curious and wants to engage with the VC space. Mm -hmm. Okay. No, I think that's clear enough, I think, for anyone who wanted to find out. So, so, so if someone finds this interesting, uh, like when do applications close? Are they open? And they're open from, from the 8th of March. Uh, when do they close? In? Yeah, I mean, as you said, the applications for this year's two programs opened up on the 8th of March and they're already open as we speak. If you go to www.dream-vc.com, you can find out more details. For both programs, the applications close on 
May 1st at 23.59 p.m. UTC. So that's going to be, you know, sometime early, early night time for those of us actually in Central or East African time. In general, that gives you more than two months from when we're recording this now to really actually get your application in. And that's just for the first stage. So you, even if you apply one day before the application deadline, that's still absolutely fine. However, we do encourage individuals who are really passionate to apply as soon as they discover it, because as mentioned, there is a four-stage application process. So the earlier you apply, the earlier you're going to know if you know, you've made some progress, if you're going to get into the program, if, for example, we need any, any other details from you and this kind of stuff. Oh, all right. Then that's good. Uh, and so now it, looking at DreamVC again, uh, like would, you, would you say DreamVC is a startup itself? Uh, and and so if 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 you if you can say that uh, like how have you found it uh, funding for yourselves and 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 how how are you guys find funded and how, how how was the experience for yourselves? Yeah, I mean several questions in there, so maybe I'll go one by one. Firstly, would I classify DreamVC as a startup? Well, yes. By my earlier definition, a startup is any company that's trying to take on a very very big market. Mm. Our angle is that this huge market is still not recognized that the VC space is open and waiting for it. So mm. we're trying to take on that huge market of diaspora wealth, domestic wealth, private wealth, et cetera. Mm. So in that sense, definitely a startup. And in terms of our growth, definitely a startup again. We've grown mm. our team more than 300% year on year, growing our candidacies on substantially, growing our revenues on substantially as well. In terms of how we've actually funded, well, initially the funding came from our founding team. So it was just a capital injection. And again, largely that capital injection came from us and the networks that we'd, we'd been able to build internationally actually mm -hmm. going on and uh, working in countries in Asia and Europe and the US and then leveraging on our friends and our colleagues from those firms to fund us. And in that sense, you know, the company is still very much 100% owned by the GMBC team. We have no external investors right now. All of the money is directly managed by the GMBC team. So, you know, we are in that sense fully self-funded or bootstrapped right now. And I don't really see us requiring any external capital, largely because, you know, we know how a startup runs, so we know how to run a startup relatively well. But that all being said, you know, I think our example is a bit of a nuanced one because we are a remote first firm. And so we don't have as many capital expenses as, for example, a startup on the ground might have. In that sense, hopefully, you know, we're going to unlock a lot more capital for peers or others who are going to be building or building something similar or something different in the next few years. and maybe. Who knows, down the line, thousands of startups might actually get funded by our graduates, which would be a really awesome thing to hear. Maybe even we will get funded by our graduates one day. Who knows? <laughs> you never know. <laughs> you just never know. <laughs> all, right, all right. So so looking at this space, uh, what are maybe the greatest uh, risks that you face as DreamVC? I mean, I think there's several very obvious risks. First and foremost is that as a remote firm, you know, we're very, very lean. And we're a very lean team. And this lean team, we do have to travel pretty much everywhere to, to build connections and to build our market presence and to really make sure that we understand the markets that we're teaching about, we're talking about, whether that's in Zimbabwe, whether that's in Kenya, whether that's in Nigeria and Ghana and Tanzania and Uganda and many other markets across the continent. So the obvious risk there is that at the moment, the business is still very much not digitized. So, you know, if our team went missing, then so, so, so would DreamVC. So there's obviously a very kind of heavy um, person or human capital risk there. More widely, I think there's a certain risk of um, 
non-adoptance, so uh, non-adoption, I, I do mm. definitely see there being a potential, you know, if, if the markets aren't as willing and if individuals aren't as willing to consider investing in edge capital, that we won't reach the kind of scale that I'd like to be see to, to reach in terms of enabling a lot of other individuals or firms, but that seems less and less likely. I think just in the first week we opened up applications, we've seen like 200 or more applications come in. So, you know, mm. I think the demand is suddenly there. Mm. I think it's just a question of like, are we going to be able to handle that demand? And well, I'm 10 cups of tea in today. So I think we're going to be able to handle that demand. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, so like, I think you touched on this earlier as well, but who else is doing what you're doing? Uh, are there any competitors? Is there anyone else? offering this yeah yeah i mean there's always for any startups oh. kind of competitor or someone doing something similar in our case it's largely organizations trying to do something similar internationally so i think oh. the, the closest analogy that i've seen and that i've experienced that i've had the friends or colleagues go on to experience is on deck in the us oh. on deck is a platform that also takes a community-driven approach and they don't focus just on the venture capital space they focus on wider professions like marketing or sales or any other role in a wider kind of economy, but they provide a really comprehensive community-driven approach to train people through programs to break into those careers. And that sounds, you know, mm -hmm. to, to me and to anybody else, really, it's very similar to the DreamVC sense. Mm -hmm. the, the difference, however, between Ondek, this large international, mostly US-based competitor and us, is that we're very much African-focused. So almost like 90 plus percent of, of our speakers are leading African GPs, principals or investors, all our content is nuanced to the 54 markets. We have content that's specific to, for example, Zimbabwe, or specific to South Africa, or specific to Nigeria. And definitely that specialization is not possible when you're operating such a huge firm that's trying mm -hmm. to just get people into you know, an industry at large. So mm -hmm. in that sense, I, I feel like we definitely have a certain niche and mm -hmm. I'm happy with that niche because as I mentioned, I feel like the VC space is only gonna grow and grow and grow. Mm. And perhaps if we're ever at the same scale as Undeck, we can start thinking about how we can solve the same capacity issues that arise with a large firm. But mm. as mentioned, we're still, you know, a pretty small firm in our own right. So let's take one big issue at a time. <laughs> one, one at a time. <laughs> well, so, so, so talking about that, uh, uh, I know your, your co-founder, Cindy, I, right? Uh, how did you guys meet? Like, where, how did DreamVC get to be? <laughs> where did it all start? Wow. Well, there's a whole big story about that. And we uh, actually detail that on our website. Definitely welcome any individual who's curious to reach out or, detail or read about that. In short, uh, one, we studied together at the University of Edinburgh in the UK. You know, uh, both of us as international students, but I guess something really, um, we hit, a lot, hit it off. And in that sense, you know, we both were really interested in working in the innovation space. We were both very entrepreneurial. And actually that first startup I mentioned that I used to work in, that was actually something where we first kind of worked together and realized that we worked together really well. And then it just kind of worked long after that. So a few years down the line, we actually were flatmates. And then since then we realized that one, we like to work on the same things and we kind of entered the African investment space at the same time too. So it's kind of kicked off and yeah, not really looked back ever since. We've founded the two companies together since. We've made investments together. We've worked at several funds together and now we're running DreamVC together. So for better or for worse, we somehow managed to <laughs> stick together in this sense. And uh, yeah, I guess that's really worked out in our favor as well because you, you, know, you can never underestimate how amazing it is to have somebody who just really understands you and understands kind of the ambitions or goals you might have in terms of building a company. 
Ah, lovely story. Uh, so, so, so looking at, at Dream VC, so then uh, as the startup, so like what 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 training do you have? What passion do you have? Like, what makes you guys the right people to try to 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 fix this? To to mm -hmm. run Dream VC, just yeah. just to know your passions, where they come from, and why you feel uh, the training or the experience mm -hmm. necessary or the connections yeah yeah i mean i think the first and foremost point is that you know we didn't start as high net worth individuals as multimillionaires, as billionaires as someone who had access to knowledge or network or capital mm -hmm. it's very much something where you know myself my co-founder my team all of us broke into the vc space or the entrepreneurship world fully through just hard work so, you know, on our end, I didn't come from a family where anyone had ever worked in the um, entrepreneurial spaces. In fact, my family, largely Russian and Ukrainian, had never even interacted with any startups or knew any startups. Mm. The same could be said for my co-founder, who just several generations ago weren't even in the knowledge economy. So in that sense, you know, we very much, you know, uh, are doing something unprecedented in, you know, our backgrounds. And what we did was we broke into the entrepreneurship space. We build successful companies. We manage to sell those companies and actually, you know, do something that few entrepreneurs can do and really learned a lot in the process. And subsequently, both I and my team have worked in venture capital funds really across the world. In my case, I've worked with about seven different VCs over the last few years in the US and Europe and Southeast Asia and in West Africa. And collectively between our team, I think we have you know, quite a lot of experience in working across multiple ecosystems, something that I feel is underestimated when it comes to working in the African context, where mm -hmm. 54 markets are providing you with 54 different nuances. Yeah. Each market has its own challenges and opportunities. I think it's that kind of hybrid background and it's kind of that kind of hybrid environment on our team that's actually an advantage rather than a weakness that kind of makes us really, really the best people to kick this off and get this started. Whether we're the best people to manage this long-term well, let's wait and see. There's no precedent, so we can't say. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, no, that's that, that's good to hear. Uh, so, looking at so right now, I'm going to bring it to Zimbabwe, uh, and Africa at large as well. Like you, you said you you worked for a VC as well, even before you founded uh, Dream VC, and like uh, so we we talked about. Uh, only 25% of startup, uh, black founded startups getting funding and, and stuff. Is there a case to be made? Like, what do you, what did you see and what do you see in the startups that are uh, in Africa right now? Is there potential there? Are there a lot of gems that are not being tapped into or, it, because to be honest, it could be a case of, you know what, <laughs> some of these startups that are not getting funding are just, they just they just built on on bad ideas. So, so as someone who's just on the outside, I just don't know the quality of startups that are in this space. Like, what are you seeing in in Africa right now? What are you seeing all over Africa? Well, okay. Well, I'll try to pack this in in five minutes, but come back to me in a week and we could have a week-long conversation about this. <laughs> um, there's a lot, to be honest, that I can go on, but let me touch on a few major trends and then mm. hopefully that answers your question. Mm. Firstly, major like elephant in the room that's not being mentioned, Francophone African countries. Mm. Out of this five $5.2 billion in funding in 2021, I think 80% or more went to Anglophone countries and Egypt mm. as well. 
So the almost half of the African continent right now is basically seeing, you know, just a speck of venture capital funding. That means that even if we go by the analogies of like gems in the rough, just statistically speaking, considering that opportunities and talent is equally distributed around the world, mm-hmm. there are hundreds and hundreds of entrepreneurs who are perfectly fit for venture capital funding, who are not getting venture capital funding in Francophone African countries. Mm-hmm. Step one. Step two, the point around underfunded gems or finding those gems, other gems actually existing, absolutely. The venture capital industry is very interesting in the sense that unlike angel investing, which usually comes in with investing in a business and then waiting for that business to take off, venture capitalists are often hands-on investors. That means that they invest in a company that maybe is underperforming or is about to grow and they help that company grow faster. So if you look at 100 top businesses in the world, 98 of them raise venture capital funding at some point in their life. There's a certain correlation between building a very, very large successful business and actually going on and raising venture capital funding. The two aren't interlinked. You can't build a a great business without raising VC funding or private equity funding, but often you do by that Mm -hmm. early assumption that you need to grow really quickly. So what I'm seeing right now in many African countries, we have thousands of family-owned businesses, for example, that have experienced either mismanagement or undermanagement, and so which have a lot of potential, sometimes generating millions of dollars in annual revenue, which aren't growing as fast as they could be because of that management issue or because there, for example, some constraints or the goals of the company are not actually aligned with building that company for an IPO or building that company for a high growth prospect. So there's a huge, huge opportunity there. Mm-hmm. At the same time, we now have a continent that is super, super young. I think the average age is still, what, 19, 20 years old. And mm-hmm. in that environment, this new generation of people who are growing up, last generation didn't have any examples of entrepreneurs other than the Dangote family and a few others. They couldn't really think of who has gone out there to build a really successful company. But now we're seeing more and more examples. Individuals that are young are looking up to the Ian Lewis out there, you know, people behind like Flutterwave, behind Andela, behind, you know, Chippercash and other huge firms that have been built by African founders. And that means that on an institutional level, we're going to see thousands, if not tens of thousands, or even hundreds of thousands of people move into entrepreneurship in the next five to 10 years. Hmm. Now, compare that against the 700 or so companies across all of the African continent that raised venture capital funding last year, right? Hmm. 700 against tens, if not hundreds of thousands of people entering the space. Just statistically, even if like 1% of the 100,000 people entering the space are amazing entrepreneurs, I'm betting it's more than 1%. Mm. If it was just more than 1%, that's already more than double the amount of funding required to actually support them. And that's just at the early stage. What about the mid stage? What about when those businesses grow? What about all the businesses founded in the last five years that are going to need a lot more capital now to go and build into a global business, right? So Mm. actually, I think that it's not just like a gems in the rough analogy. It's more that there's I hesitate to say like, you know, a golden opportunity, but there's a golden opportunity in a lot of these markets because mm-hmm. historically founders have been underbacked, undersupplied, undersupported. So it's just a matter of bringing that support up to international levels, you mm-hmm. know, just bringing it back to a certain degree of um, equal access to opportunity. And who knows what's going to go from that? Who knows how many unicorns we're going to see? You know, I think there's mm-hmm. infinite potential there. And uh, I want to, you know, see what's going to come from that. And I want to see, you know, we see definitely being part of that. So let's see what happens. Wow. Wow. Now, now I'm excited. Who knows? You might see me uh, apply it. <laughs> uh, so just uh, 
talking so right now i'm just going to talk about zimbabwe i don't know how much you know about zimbabwe but is is zimbabwe an attractive market for vc investment or so what kind of makes it attractive or unattractive uh in, in your view i think there's a couple of things that make zimbabwe relatively attractive right so i mean i, I zimbabwe isn't one of the markets that i is an individual focus on that we do cover zimbabwe in our programs hmm. my core idea is that zimbabwe is a market that historically has been largely overshadowed by its presence close to south africa so South Africa has often been, you know, a wealth capital, a wealth hub in its own right. And there are a lot of relatively wealthy individuals in South Africa that have kept that wealth domestic to you know, the South African economy. What that has meant is that you see a lot of individuals similarly from Zambia, just like Zimbabwe, moving to South Africa for jobs or trying to see, you know, seek a sort of grass is greener analogy further to my earlier point. Now, what I think is happening now is that we have a relatively wealthy, relatively well-informed, relatively powerful Zimbabwean diaspora. You often see now also more individuals similarly in Zimbabwe thinking, okay, why does Nigeria and Ghana and Uganda and Kenya and South Africa have you know, easy access to payments? Why is it easily able to access you know, USSD payments? Why are there all these startups from these countries that are raising $30 million or $50 million, but then you don't see the same happening with young Zimbabwean founders? So a lot more people are starting to see that cultural acceptance of entrepreneurship. The Zimbabwean story, I don't see it as a unique case on the continent. What is unique is I think that, you know, all the Zimbabweans I've had the pleasure of working with have been very kind of open-minded about that. And they've been curious about engaging with the space. In mm. fact, you know, one of the 30 people out of the thousand or more that applied to us that actually got into the first fellowship was Zimbabwean. And now mm. she's working at an investment firm focused on Zimbabwean companies. Mm. Right. So I think that the potential in Zimbabwe is pretty substantial. You know, we're not talking about a very, very small country. Zimbabwe is still a relatively major economy, and it's an economy that is growing and has a lot of potential in digitizing its economy, in substantially enabling more people to move into the technology space, and in leveraging on the 15 million odd population to actually bring a bit more adoption of what could happen if we actually funded our startups more, what could happen if we encouraged, you know, Zimbabwean-focused innovation, and what could happen if we encourage the diaspora as well as other groups to start investing alongside Zimbabwe and building something entirely new? The amount of wealth that could be created out of scratch, mm. you know, can't put a number on that. No, uh, it's always good to hear this perspective of someone from outside the country. You know how it is. When you're in it, sometimes you, you don't see what's right in front of you. So that was, that was nice to hear. So, Lastly, uh, as a startup, uh, like why, why would VC financing as a source of capital be attractive? Why, why would a startup prefer VC funding to other, mm -hmm. other traditional forms of funding? Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, the first and most obvious one is that it's accessible. Mm -hmm. <laughs> VC gets a lot of criticism that it's inaccessible, but by nature, it's the sort of funding that's oriented at businesses that really need it, but that don't fit traditional sources of funding. You won't be able to access a bank and you don't really want to be going to, you know, um, more suspicious or less legitimate lenders to give you a high interest rate loan if you need capital to grow your business. VCs and angel investors uh, by proxy are both in it for a very long period of time. Mm -hmm. The average venture capital funds lifestyle and life cycle is about 10 years. And that means that they're making investments and actually sitting on those investments from anywhere from four to about nine years or so. As a result, they're not just joining your business and asking you, giving you some money and asking for a high interest loan right away. 
In fact, quite often they don't even expect any particular return, but they think that your business is going to grow so substantially that they want to be alongside you on that journey. And what VCs do is instead of giving you a debt or a loan, they buy a portion of ownership in your company. So technically you haven't sold your factory, you haven't sold your office, you haven't given them any debt obligations, and they almost have no downside protection. So if your company fails, they're going to lose that money too. But if there's an upside, if your company really grows, they're going to get a lot of benefit out of that. So the VC angle is, you know, much, much more risk, but much higher, you know, return potential. And that's really what the VC space is all about. So I think the biggest benefit for a startup is better terms than you would get from traditional lenders, more accessibility than you would get from traditional lenders, and substantially, just unrivaled substantially level of support than from traditional lenders. A bank isn't going to go to you and say, how can we help you drive sales? Yeah. But a VC very, might, very might, well might allocate a consulting team or analyst team just to work with you to help you grow your business. Very few other sources of funding would do that. So in that sense, a VC is very closely aligned to your growth, mm. but it's also something that is inherently only just for a small subset of companies that can justify that they're going to grow at such an exponential rate so as to make sure that the VC actually gets its own return as well. No, no, that that caps it out. No, excellent. Oh, oh guys, oh, my guest has been Mark Kleiner, uh, co-founder of Dream VC. Uh, Mark, thank you so much for for being on on this podcast. Thank you for having me on, Leonard. Oh, cool. So, so just as a reminder, guys, uh, applications are open. Uh, visit dream-vc.com uh, if you're interested in what we talked about today. Uh, get in on this section. Uh, who knows? You could be funding a unicorn. Uh, so, so Mark, thank you. All the best. Thank you. Goodbye. Oh, goodbye.